I want you to turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, I'm looking in a couple of chapters tonight. 1 Samuel in the 13th chapter and then in the 14th chapter. For time's sake, I'm going to read a few verses to you. And uh, after that I read those verses, I'd like to just share some things that God has placed on my heart that may be a help to you tonight. I pray it will be a blessing to you in 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. As we, as we look together in the Word of God at these passages of Scripture, I want you to notice there's a couple uh, figures involved in this that they're the main characters, if you will, in the study. One is Saul, the king, and the other is Jonathan, his son. And this is at a time when the Philistines has surrounded them. They're in a tremendous battle, and it appears as though that the Philistines are going to win, and there's absolutely no way that they can find victory. And I suppose if uh, we stop and think about this together, I, 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 think, uh, I think it's good that we pause every now and then and reflect on the fact that we are going to fight some battles. That's the last song they sung tonight. We're, we're gonna face some things, but the Lord has given us the battle plan. And there may be someone going through a battle right now. You may be pressed in spirit right now. You may be distressed right now or you have fought some battles in your lifetime and you fully understand how they must have felt being surrounded by the enemy. It's one thing to have one enemy but it's another thing to feel like you have a mass of enemies all around you and that's how they felt. When you get to the 22nd verse of the 13th chapter, the Bible says this, so it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and Jonathan, his son was there found. So they're not only fighting a battle, but now the Philistines have destroyed all of the smiths and taken away all the spears, all the swords, until the only spear or sword left in the entire camp of Israel was in the hand of Saul and the hand of Jonathan. So you're fighting an enormous battle against a strong enemy, you're outnumbered, and they have cut off your supply of weapons. So now it makes it worse that you feel like that your warriors don't even have anything to defend themselves with. And that's how the devil always wants us to feel. He wants us to feel like we're outnumbered, he wants us to feel like that he has everything in his power, in his control, and we're left with too little to fight him when we face a battle. So that's the situation that they're in. By the time you get to chapter 14, we see now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bears armor, come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side, but he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the, and the people that were with him were about 600 men. In verse six, and Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For if there is no restraint to the Lord, for there is no restraint to the Lord, rather, to save by many or by few. 
Verse 24, and the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had adjured the people saying, cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening that I may be avenged on mine enemy, of mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food and all they of the land came to a wood and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath, wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand, dipped it in a honeycomb, put it to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father hath troubled the land, See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. And I'm preaching tonight on the subject, heavenly honey. Heavenly honey. What a strange place to find honey in the middle of a battle. But really, isn't that when you need it the most? When things are the worst, God gives us what we need. Let me just bring out a few points very quickly in this account and even out of some of the verses that I didn't read that you can read when you go home tonight. First of all, when the enemy surrounded them and you're in the middle of the battle, it's important to always remember to look at their reaction because their reaction is the same reaction that a lot of others have. What happened to Saul and these 600 men, it's very significant to us when we fight a battle. Notice where he's at in verse two. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree. Now it's a time for a king to rise up and be a leader. But instead of being a leader, he's sitting in fear under a pomegranate tree. These 600 others, along with others that are with them, you'll find out later in this chapter, they're hiding in holes and caves and they're hiding so the enemy can't see them. Here is the most powerful force in all the world, but they are terrified of this enemy. So here he is sitting under a pomegranate tree. Being under a pomegranate tree should have reminded him that the Lord was on his side. Every time you read about pomegranates in your Bible, it always has to do with the work of God or the house of God. For example, the pillars that were in the temple the Bible says that the pillars at the top of the temple, the pillars that were there, there was pomegranates engraved on them. So in the house of God, pomegranates was over top their head saying that God is fruitful and that the fruit comes from God out of heaven above. Not only that, but in the garment of the high priest, you'll find out that there was pomegranates, the, the emblem of a pomegranate sewn into the hem of his garment and then a bale, then another pomegranate, then a bale, then another pomegranate and a bale. So it was not only a picture of the house of God, but it was a picture of the priest in the house of God doing the work of God. So here he is inside the house of God. As a reminder, he's saying that God's always concerned about pomegranate, which is fruit, and then he's also concerned about the bale. So you have throughout this entire thing, a fruit and a bell, fruit and a bell. Why is that? Because really it's a picture of fruit and noise, 
fruit and noise. Every time he walked, you could hear the bells ring. Every time he moved, you could hear the bells ring. And you know what God is saying? God is saying the church should always be noisy about fruit. When we see people get saved, we should be happy. That hasn't changed. And we should rejoice in the fact it was significant to them. In fact, if you remember when the high priest, the only one allowed to go into the holiest of holies, when he would go back into the holiest of holies and offer up the blood, they couldn't see inside. They were on the outer court and they couldn't see what he was doing. They know that he had gone in to offer up the blood for the glory of God to come down and for the forgiveness of the sin of their nation. But when they were on the outside, they couldn't see, but they could hear. So here they would be listening. And when they would hear those bells begin to ring, they knew the high priest was on his way out of the holiest of holy to tell them that the work had been accomplished and that it was finished. And they would begin to murmur, I hear the ringing of the bells. I hear the ringing of the bells. And you know that's how we should be. We should say every time that someone gets saved, the bells of heaven are ringing. And we should make noise over the fact that lives have been changed by the power of God. So here they are, instead of fighting, they are resting, they are hiding, and they are worrying. And that's exactly where we're at in the church world today. What people in the church that are not resting, they are hiding. Do you know uh, if my records are accurate, do you know that we have over 1,600 people that claim this to be their home church? I'm telling you, 500 of them, the CIA couldn't find them. But when they die or get sick, suddenly I hear from them. Just a minute, just a minute. Preach, cow. Hiding. So you've got some resting. You've got some hiding. And then you've got some just worrying. Worrying, worrying, worrying. That's all they do, full-time job, worrying. But you can't take any thought of tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. Why do we worry when we've got a God in heaven that watches over us and provides for us and takes care of us? Oh, we have no need to worry nor fret. So that was their reaction. But that wasn't Jonathan's reaction. Instead of his reaction of hiding, worrying, and resting, Jonathan takes action. He turns to his armor bearer and he said, why sit we here till we die? Who can tell if God will save us by many or by few? Do you know what he was saying? If God wants us to win, it doesn't take 600. If God wants us to win, it just takes a few with the vision of God that's willing to say, I'm not gonna sit here and do nothing. I'm going to get up with God's help. I'm going into the battle and I'm gonna let the enemy know that I serve the true and the living God that can do anything. I'm going to do something for God. So that was their reaction. So they said, he said, this is what we'll do. We'll go over and we'll watch for the sign from God. 
Almost like, as we have said, people put out a fleece. We'll watch the reaction of the enemy when we reveal ourselves to them. See, they can't find they can't find Saul in his arm anywhere. And out of the clear blue, two of them pop up in the middle of their camp. Get the picture. They go into the enemy's territory. I don't know, maybe I'm not making this clear enough. You ought to realize who you are and what authority God has given to you as a believer. And we have every right to go into the enemy's camp and we don't need to sit around and worry about things. We need to start going into the enemy's camp and saying, that doesn't belong to you. You are in our territory and God has given us the authority in Jesus' name. And he said, well, watch the reaction. And the way they react, when they see us, then we'll know whether God has given the enemy to us or not. Well, the reaction was just what he prayed for. So immediately, he and his armor bearers slay 20 Philistines. 20, now that's not many compared to the large amount of Philistines that surround them, but it was enough to get things started. You gotta start somewhere. And that's a pretty remarkable feat. Two men taking on 20 and slaying 20 and they never suffered any injury. And now, not only have they slain the 20, but all of a sudden when they look and see the 20 slain and they see Jonathan there with his sword, 20 slain, his armor bearer, the first thing that dawns on them, they say, they're going to come out of the holes and out of the caves. God is on their side. We better do something. And they start turning on each other. And not, not only that, but they had some Hebrews that were among them and they turned on the Philistines then and suddenly they start fighting each other and they start melting away and the more they fight, the more noise they make and suddenly Saul is aroused and he says, what's going on? Take account, who's missing? They come back and say, why Saul, it's your son Jonathan and his armor bearer he said, just the two of them, and the noise got louder in the enemy's camp. Suddenly Saul said, get your weapons. Get whatever you have. You don't have spear, you don't have sword. Get anything you've got. Grab a rock, grab a club, whatever's in your hand will do. Let's not stop. I don't even want you to stop and eat. If you stop and eat, he said, you'll be cursed with death. Don't stop and eat. You just keep going because we're going to fight the enemy. Suddenly, he gets motivated. Where was he at a few minutes before that? Hiding under a pomegranate tree. Isn't it funny when things start happening? All of a sudden, everybody wants to take credit for it. But when they're on the wrong side of the battle, going into the battle, all you can hear is how impossible that it is, how difficult that it is, how terrible that it is. I remember years ago, I've told this story here, I remember years ago uh, when I'd come to the church and we started our first building project. And in that building project, I'd made a statement 
from the pulpit in a sermon. And it's funny how people will just pick one part of a sermon, but they pick that part of the sermon. And I made a statement in that particular sermon. I said, you know, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the Lord owns the hills and he owns everything in the earth and we ought to set the goal right now. We're gonna build on and we're not only gonna build on, but we're gonna pay cash. Now, I'm not against other churches borrowing money. I just didn't want to. It's not right for those that's watching live stream. I'm not setting the principle for your church. I'm just saying at that time, that's why God touched my heart. Well, this preacher pulls up one day. We're just starting with the building project. And this preacher pulls up. He's in a brand new Lincoln Continental. And he gets out of his car and he said, "Uh, can I talk to you in private? I said, sure. He said, uh, Cal, somebody told me something I can't hardly believe. They told me that Sunday you preach from your pulpit that that you all, you're not gonna get this built until you have cash to pay for it. And I said, yeah, that's what I said. He said, Cal, I'm disappointed in you. Where's your faith? Now, this is what he said to me. Older preacher, he said, I know you're young. It's your first pastorate. You don't know anything yet. He said, but I'm telling you, if you don't go in debt, you're never gonna have nothing. He said, you need to just step out, go down, borrow the money, have faith in God to make the payments every month. And he said, I'm really disappointed. I thought you were a man of God that was full of faith. He said, you don't have any faith. So I just looked at him. I said, thank you so much. I'm so glad you've educated me greatly. I said, man, I appreciate it so much. We talked for a few minutes. Give them enough rope, they hang themselves. And I walk back over by his car and uh, I get my handkerchief out and I'm wiping on the hood of his car. I said, man, that is one nice car. I said, where did you get that at? He told me where he bought it. I said, is that new? Brand new. He said, don't even have 500 miles on it yet. I said, wow, that's something. So that's an expensive automobile. I said, did you pay cash for it? He said, well, yeah. I said, I'll tell you what, since you have so much faith, sign the title of this over to me. I'll sell it and put the money to pay for the building. And you have faith in God to make payments on the Lincoln you buy to replace this one. And he said, you're just being a smart aleck now. I said, man, stop and think about it. What is greater, to have faith in God to make a payment every month or have faith in God to pay for a whole building? I said, how big is your God? I believe God can do anything. I believe if we're sincere about it. Now, it's one thing if I'm being foolish and I just want money for me, but if we're doing something for the glory of God, I think God is able to do anything. He is not limited in any way. And don't judge your faith by those things. The thing is, when things get going, everybody wants to take the credit then. But the truth of the matter is, every now and then somebody's gotta say, I can't wait on everybody else. 
lost. I can't wait on somebody else to get a burden for the lost. I can't wait on somebody else to go tell them about Jesus. I'm going to have to just do it myself. I'm going to have to be the one to go do it whether they do or not. Motivation. See, Jonathan was motivated by God. Saul was motivated by an enemy that was dying. I'd rather be motivated by God. So he has the motivation. So with that, he says, now he makes all these declarations like he's the leader. He hadn't led him to do anything else. But now he makes this declaration, don't even stop to eat. You just keep going. They were faint. Well, there was one problem with that. Um, He didn't see what God had prepared for them just ahead. And Jonathan had this little problem. He wasn't in the board meeting. So he didn't know nothing about this. So they come into the woods and honey is dripping. It's dripping down. Now, Jonathan takes that as a sign from God. I I didn't get a chance today. I I was in several meetings. I'm certainly not complaining, but I was in several different meetings today and I didn't get a chance to call a couple folks. I was gonna call them, but uh, I hope what I read was accurate Uh, I I went to a couple source books and looked. And you know, the process, uh, we've got some beekeepers here in the church. I know Mary Lou's here tonight. Chuck and Sherry's here. I know they've taken care of bees and maybe some others. I hope I'm not looking over anyone. But if I'm reading correctly, when you start with your first hives, they say really don't expect any honey the first year, not because the bees don't make the honey, but it's kind of like the bees deserve the honey the first year when they start the hive up, so right away. But then in the bee making, in the honey making process, they, on the average they say it doesn't take the bees 45 days to make the honey, but it's a process of about 45 days is, is what they're looking at. What really amazed me uh, on several uh, source books that I went to this afternoon, if I read correctly, do you know that it takes 9,216 bees to make one gallon of honey? 9,216 bees for one gallon of honey. Man, that's a lot of bees. Now, if it's a 45-day process, we're just giving benefit of a doubt here. Uh, they haven't been fighting for 45 days. But they go into these woods and honey is dripping down. You're not getting this yet. See, God went before them 45 days earlier, told the bees to start working. And if it takes 9,216 bees to make one gallon, there's so much honey that it's dripping down. And the people are looking at it. They're faint, they're hungry. But Jonathan takes his rod. He takes something that is dead, a dead stick, dips it in the honey, puts it to his mouth, and the Bible puts it this way. His eyes were enlightened. It's like life came back into him. He's saying, oh, is this good or what? God has gone before me, prepared the honey. Now, he didn't make the honey, 
Somebody else went before him and made sure he had what he needed when he got there. He wasn't responsible for it. He was getting something that he didn't make. In other words, if you're in a battle, get real close to somebody that's dripping with honey. God will send people into your life that when you're fighting these battles, they've been to a place already where they have gone before you to prepare the way and the Lord will send them at the right time, at the perfect time for you. God has it all worked out. Everything's prepared and God's going before you each step of the way. And with that, it's dropping down. It dropped. That means it came from above. That's a lesson to me as your pastor. What I feed you, I need to feed you manna from above. I don't need to feed you from the world. You have to walk through that every day. You get enough of that. What I feed you needs to come down from God out of heaven above. Needs to be sweet and refreshing. And he said the only problem with the king is the king has been wrong on other things. And if you follow the wrong leaders, that will happen. He put his life on the line. And if you go on and read the account, they now want to see what the king's gonna do about taking his life because he didn't keep the oath. But the problem was he didn't know there was an oath. You're the best place that you can get in your Christian experience where you can forget about the chatter of the world and the pressures of life and just come in and sit down and let God drop honey down on you. That's the best place you can be at. They cursed him. You need, you need to understand there's two important characters that I mentioned earlier. Saul, even though he was king, he wasn't anointed any longer. He wasn't operating under the anointing. He was operating under his mental abilities and his power his authority. Jonathan was operating under the anointing. So the people was worried about Saul. Let, Let me just put it this way. When you face a battle, don't go to unanointed people for your answers. If you have marriage problems, Don't ask somebody that's been married 13 times the secret to a happy marriage. Now, I'm not being cruel about this. I'm just being sincere. Don't don't do that. They They can't help you. If you have gone through a particular thing in your life and you go to a source that they know nothing about what they're talking about, they can give you the wisdom of the world but they can't give you the help that you need 
Go to anointed people. They may not give you the answer like that. And they may tell you, I need to pray about it. And I need to seek the Lord about it. But you need to go to anointed people to get anointed answers. So they were, they were faced with a situation. <laughs> do, do I think it's right to eat heavenly honey? Or don't I? Is the order of a king greater than the blessings of God? Are the opinions of mankind more significant than the sweetness of God's presence? If you are in a battle, please listen to me. Find someone that's been in the honey. Because people that's been in the honey are enlightened. They've got an understanding that is greater than the teaching and wisdom of the world. Sometimes it seems impossible. I know that. I know things seem impossible. And you may be in situations right now where it looks impossible. You may be fighting the battle of your life right now and you may feel like you're completely surrounded by the enemy. But the truth of the matter is, God's already gone before you and God has everything that you need. And as you look to him, you pray, Lord, when I don't know, send anointed people across my pathway. You may not know them. You may not know anything about them but you'll know they've been with God and you'll know they have the help that you need.